If you would please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation to John. I would encourage, while you're turning, I'll, I'll just say it. It was mentioned on Wednesday nights we were having the men speak, and that will be every Wednesday night throughout the summer. It's always a, a wonderful thing, a wonderful time to hear from our men. And men, I would like for you to take that opportunity and sign up, if you would sign up and give us a, uh, a passage that you're going to be working on. We, we love to hear from the Word. If you would uh, do that, that would, be, that would just be great. It's always refreshing time. So, Revelation chapter... One, we're beginning the series today, and just read one verse, and I'm not going to start with verse one. Now, that's strange, but I want to jump down to verse three. We can do that in the book of Revelation. Verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heeds or keeps the things which are written in it. For the time is near. And I want to just read the, last, the first phrase of verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for bringing us together this morning. Thank You for Your faithfulness as has been sung. And we just, uh, Lord, You are faithful. You continue to be faithful. Week in and week out. Week after week, You are faithful to us. And we come here just one day a week, really, on Sunday, and we, we spend our time looking at Your Word. And I pray that You would bless our time. Thank You for the singing portion, just singing praises to You. And it's just such an, an enriching thing for our lives. But Lord, I pray that You would also bless this time where we come before Your Word and we hear from You what You have to say. Now, Lord, I pray that You would bless our Bless this time in the Word. May, may it bring joy to our hearts and bring comfort to our hearts as we think through these things. Thank you for this book of revelation that exposes prophecy, that exposes what will take place in times uh, in the future. And Lord, you could have kept this to yourself, but you revealed it to us. We just thank you. Lord, I know that there's several that are not here today because of sickness. I want to just think of Mrs. Gross. I just thank you so much of, uh, for her and Kenny Gross as they are just have been faithful so, so many years here. I pray that you would just strengthen her. She's in the hospital. And I know uh, uh, Lou Gates is in the hospital as well. And I, I pray for strengthening with her as well. And uh, Lord, I, I thank you for... Your grace that we can call upon you. We can bring these names before you because you are a faithful God. And I know those, they would love to be here. Love to hear the hearing of the word of God. I pray that, uh, Lord, as we look into this, we would, we would apply these things to our lives where it is applicable. May it change our thinking as well. May we conform to it and not force its conformity to our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we are approaching this book, Revelation, 22 chapters. You say it's going to take forever, as fast as I go. But as we were approaching this, we're going through this, and I've been excited about this book. This is no easy book, but I have a, I'm approaching this with some excitement. As we do so, I want this lesson, this sermon, to really be just an introduction to the book. I just 
Here's a, a few things that we need to know, and I want to jump right into those things. Uh, as by way of introduction, we need to know, first of all, we need to understand the method of interpretation. Now, why do I say that? We need to understand the method of interpretation. We need to understand the method of interpretation because there's so many different approaches here. Calvin, he refused to do a commentary on the book of Revelation because he said, I'm not dumb enough to tackle that book. He said he, he wasn't going to go there. Now, he would preach some through it, and he had his views and things, but it's a difficult book. And because of the symbolism and because of the allegory uh, and because of our tendency just to use our own uh, imagination and our tendency to spiritualize things that we don't quite understand, so we kind of force meaning into it, read our own understanding into the book, we tend to do that. Now, um, many of you, I myself, have tried to read this book. I, I don't want to ask for a show of hands or a show of guilt, but how many of you, think about this, have started reading the book of Revelation. Oh, I love, I want to read this book of Revelation. And you start through it and you get through chapter 1 and chapter 2 and you think, oh, this is not so bad, this is good. Then you get to chapter 4 and then it gets a little complicated. And then by the time you get to chapter 6, you're thinking, I don't know what this is saying. And usually you lose heart and you, and you stop. But this book has a blessing to it. But there's still a lot of confusion because of people have different approaches to this book. And let me give you four quick uh, approaches throughout history that people have had through this book. Four approaches to Revelation. First is the preterist view. You'll see all four of them there. The preterist view, I just want to give a, a quick summary of this. They would view the book of Revelation as descriptive of just the first century Roman Empire. John was just describing what was going on in his day and, and all of the, the problems, and uh, he was doing that to, to help the people there cope. And, and so he was, he was, that's why he was writing this book, and uh, just kind of different stories, and he was using Christian principles and, and that kind of thing. But the problem with that, in verse 3 we saw that this is a prophecy. If you look at the middle of verse 3, it says, "...who hear the words of the prophecy." And heed this book. This book is a prophetic book. This book is, is prophecy for the most part. So that doesn't really match with that particular view. Not as many people hold to that view today. This book also talks about the coming of Christ. And if you just stick that within the first century of the uh, first century church or the Roman Empire there, you would conclude that Christ came back then. But we know that Christ has not come. So we can, we can discount that view. In my mind, I don't see that that is an, a viable approach to this book. Look, there's another one, the historical view. This view sees this book of Revelation as a panoramic view. This is just kind of an overview of church history, starting from the apostles all the way, moving all the way up, even to the present time, and they would see these stories and the events in this book as symbolic, kind of symbolism, kind of allegory, all the way from the barbarians invading Rome. They kind of see that in the book of Revelation. They see the rise of the Catholic Church, the rise of Islam, religion, the, all the way up to the French Revolution, uh, or the French Revolution, and they see 
see all of those things. So they would see it as a history book. Now, I don't know exactly what point they, they go back and they, they start, okay, it stops right here or anything like that, but it's, it's more of just a, a history book. The stories and event is just revelation, just giving us the, the brief history of the church that's going to take place, and they would see it as already taken place in the past. And the problem is, is how do you know which event, which event that's happened in real life correlates with the events of the book of Revelation? And there's a lot of problems with that. There's a lot of people that have that view that, well, this event means this, and they would say, no, no, it doesn't mean this, it means something else. And, but it also, so there's conflicts there, but it also robs the, in the meaning of the people that received the book. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches. What did it mean to the seven churches? And if it was just a history book, well, what, what would that mean to them? It, it really, and they would just say, well, he was just giving God's principles and biblical principles and that kind of thing throughout these stories and throughout history. But they would see it as a historical book. We wouldn't see it that way. There's another view, the idealist view. And this uh, the, this view sees this as uh, sees this book as timeless uh, stories uh, depicting this cosmic struggle between good and evil, between God and Satan. And it, don't don't look too much into the detail, uh, but it's just this big picture of of the forces of good and the forces of of evil. And we understand that's a disconnect, isn't it? It's a disconnect from history, and it's a disconnect from events even in the future. It's a disconnect from, from reality is the way they would see it. It's just a kind of, we, you have, you're supposed to take away from the book of Revelation that, that God wins, and we want to be on God's side. Well, that's true, but, but you have to look at details, and you, have to, you cannot detach it there. But they would say, basically, it's just a story, a collection of stories, uh, spiritual truths, again. Now, you're going to run into people that have those views. You'll read books or you'll read things that, of people that have those views. And I would, I would just reject those views. It's clear, the author says, this is a prophetic book. This is prophecy. And, by the way, it comes along with a blessing. Now, let me give you one other view. And this is the view that I would hold to. This is the view that uh, this church has held to for many years, probably its inception. This is the futurist view. And we would see that the, the majority of this book, at least starting in chapter 6, all the way up to chapter 22, is still yet to happen. It hasn't happened. That's the, the prophetic part of this book. Now you have chapters 1 to 5, and we'll talk about that. But the majority of this book is prophetic. And these chapters uh, speak literally and figurative of people are depicting actual people and actual events that haven't taken place yet. It hasn't happened yet. These people haven't even been on the scene, we would say. Now, this view comes from a literal interpretation of Scripture, and that's what we hold to, a literal interpretation of Scripture. We would treat Genesis and Psalm and the book of Romans, we would, all, we would approach all of those books with a literal interpretation, a literal view. We would, it's actually called, theologians call it, the grammatical, historical, and we would add contextual method of interpretation. It's just a common sense method of interpretation. 
We would, we would interpret Genesis the same way we would interpret Psalm or Romans. Just, uh, just common sense that these were real people. This was uh, to be understood with real life events. Now, it may use... It may use symbolism, it may use allegories to help explain things, to help us understand the spiritual world in which we cannot see. It helps us uh, understand that, but it's, but it's literal. It's real. It's going to happen. And so we would hold to that view. And the question that we would go back, it's the same question, what would they see, how would they approach this, that those who would receive this letter from John, those seven churches. Well, they would, it would just be common sense. Okay, John, I see what John's doing here. And uh, he's using allegory, he's using symbolism, but he's speaking of real things. He's speaking of things that are going to take place in real people. So it's just a common sense view. Now, I want to apply that a little bit. Because here's what I believe that we do. We read a little bit of Scripture and we, we kind of let our imaginations go and, and we, we tend to kind of embellish Scripture. And, and we do this when we're just wanting to, to read a, a verse sometimes and then kind of go on our way. We'll read that verse and that verse, boy, speaks to our heart. It's a blessing to us. And so we just go on our way as opposed to studying it. As opposed to studying, we need to study is, is difficult and it's taxing, but you have to push through for understanding. And most of the time, we get enough to, to encourage our hearts. We get enough to our emotions kind of kicked in. Oh, yeah, that was such a blessing to me. And I just go on my merry way. But we need to, we need to approach Scripture to understand the message. Because that's, therein lies the hope. Therein lies the real encouragement when we understand the message, not just to uh, just a, a little bit, a, a verse here and a verse there that kind of encourages our hearts, but we go for understanding. We take on understanding. Now, of course, in Scripture, we are commanded. We're commanded to read. And that's, that's hard sometimes. Reading, just sticking with the text. What does the text say? We're commanded to meditate on the text, mull it over and over, and we're encouraged to study. We're commanded to study, seek understanding. We have to push through sometimes our emotional attachment, and, and we want to engage our minds, and that's what we have to do with the book of Revelation. We can't just get up to the part, well, that's hard to understand, and we just kind of give up. No, we push through for understanding and for clarity. And the best way to do that is to compare Scripture with Scripture. It's just a common sense view. We it's the same author as the book of Genesis. The same author as the book of Psalms. So I would encourage us to, uh, to push on. Push on to understanding and not just, uh, not just take some spiritual truths out and, and kind of uh, truths that warm our heart and fill us emotionally, but push through to understand the message. What's the message of Revelation? That Christ is alive and well, and He is coming back. Now that's a message. That gives hope. That gives encouragement. That gives encouragement. So we have to understand, number one, we have to understand and establish our method of interpretation. 
And we're just going to stick with the same interpretation as we always do throughout the rest of Scripture. We're going to interpret, interpret it the same. Now, number two. Number two. The next thing we have to understand is some background and setting, the background and setting of the book. And I want to spend the majority of our time with this. That revolves around John. Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. John, a real person, writing this letter to the seven churches there. Now, he ministered there. We'll look at that in just a little bit. But it, it revolves around John. We need to understand a little bit about this man. The Bible speaks a lot about John. Probably more about John than probably most of the, the characters in the, in the Bible. There's a lot to know about John. He was a, he was a cousin of Jesus. He, um, he was a fisherman too, wasn't he? He lived on the northern part of Israel in the area of Galilee. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of um, Gentiles that lived in that area, and he was a fisherman. He was a fisherman. In fact, he uh, had a, a business with his brother and his father. They had their own boats, and they, were, they seemed to be pretty successful. They had, uh, they had servants, and they were, they were pretty well off. But one day when John and uh, James, his brother, two, two of them together, John, James and John, James was the oldest, they were, they were mending their nets. And remember, Christ comes along and he says, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. And he spent three years as a disciple of Jesus Christ and became very close with Jesus Christ. And he, Peter, James, and John, those three, they were the closest. They were the tightest with Christ. You'll see them depicted on the Lord's Supper, that picture of the Lord's Supper. And John is the one who's leaning against Christ's breast. And John became known as the disciple whom Jesus, what? Whom Jesus loved. And because of that, you kind of get this warm fuzzy with John that he was just this lovable kind of guy. But he wasn't. <laughs> He wasn't. We need to understand, his, we need to understand his, his character. In fact, sometimes when he's depicted in the ancient or, or the, some of the, the pictures that you see of him, kind of effeminate. You know, he's just this mealy-mouthed kind of guy. But he was a rugged, he was a rugged fisherman. A rugged fisherman. Like I said, he owned his own business and he was harsh. I want you to see how harsh. Turn over to, well, first of all, Jesus dubbed James and John, the two boys, I'll call them just the boys, he, he dubbed them the sons of thunder. Now that implied that their dad was just a boisterous, kind of a, a loud mouth that forced his, his way. And he probably had to be that way, starting his business or having this business as a fisherman, bringing up these boys and just the sons of thunder. Now, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because turn over to Luke chapter 9. I want you to see this. Really interesting. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. These boys, these are the boys, if you'll remember back, they were the ones that wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans. Look at verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, this is Christ, and he, he knows it's getting close to this time, and, and other translations say he set his mind toward Jerusalem, but Luke says he was, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his mind to go to the Jerusalem. Now, you know what's going to happen. This is a politically charged time right now, and if Jesus goes to Jerusalem, they know he's going to be killed. They don't like him. They've got plans for him, and 
And so he sends messengers, verse 52, and he sent messengers on ahead of him. And they went and entered into the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. So they're going to spend the night there, and so he sent some guys ahead. But look what, verse 53, but they did not receive him. This little village said, no, no, this is a, we recognize what's going on here. You're going through here, but you're headed to Jerusalem, and we know what's going on. We don't want any problems here. We don't want any problems. So they rejected, said, no, you move on. You go to the next village. Well, look what James and John did. And when the disciples, his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, oh, Lord, do you want us to command fire from heaven, fire to come down from heaven, and consume. let's wipe them out, Lord. Let's just get them. Now, that kind of reveals their heart. That kind of reveals the kind of guys they were. Let's just kill them, Lord. Fire from heaven, I'd like to see that. That's going to be great. We're going to see what God's going to do. But look at verse 55. But he turned, this is Jesus, turned and rebuked them and said, Do you not know... Or, or you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. <laughs> I like that. You don't, you don't realize what, what you're saying. You don't realize whose side you're on. You're speaking just like Satan would speak here, guys. Which side are you on? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy man's lives, but to save them. To save them. And he just went on to the next village. But that shows you. These men were, were vengeful. They were kind of angry guys. Let's get them, Lord. You've got the power. We've got the energy. Let's just go. They're angry, vengeful, harsh people, not very gracious, not very... Um, they're just downright mean. You might say they're just a bunch of rednecks. A bunch of redneck fishermen. But they were also, you know, let's add to that, they were... Um, they were the ones kind of instigating, if you remember, they were the ones kind of instigating that who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, they saw themselves as closest to Christ, right? And there was always that debate. And probably Peter was the odd man out being the closest. And, and so what did they do? You remember? They got their mom. Hey, mom, go talk to Jesus and what did she say? Hey, can, can one of them sit, one on the right and one on the left, and they would be the greatest in the kingdom, you know? And that was always a debate between these guys. And what does that show? They were not only arrogant, they were not only harsh and mean-spirited, they were just arrogant. They were just prideful. And that's John and James. That's these two brothers, man. And Jesus is on our side. We can rule the world, and this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And of course, you know, and I've already alluded to it, that Jesus comes along. You want to be fishers of men. And they, they devoted themselves to Christ. They became His disciples, followers of Him. Now, all of these things had to be dealt with, of course. And Christ had to deal with these guys, and they had to learn some things. But you know what? They learned. They loved Christ. They believed in Christ. They followed Christ. On the night that Jesus was taken away, remember that? They were in the garden. 
All the other disciples left, and John, it says, John, was he stayed right there. He followed the Roman guards as they took Jesus out. They followed him. He followed them as they put him on trial, and John was there, and he was watching all of these things take place. And we even see John at the foot of the cross, and when Jesus relinquished his responsibilities as a son, who was there? John. John. John chapter 19 gives us, he gives us the, the story there, and he, Jesus relinquishes the, his responsibility. Take care of my mother. There's a precious little scene there, right at the foot of the cross, as Jesus was taking care of those responsibilities, and he left her in charge with John. With John. I'm thinking, John? Yeah, she crosses him, man. He's going to wipe her out. Who knows what he's going to do? And he entrusted her with John. After the death of Christ, we see John, James, and Peter, those three really laid a foundation for the early church as far as their teaching was concerned. They laid this foundation. They were official in the position, uh, official position as a, an apostle, not called disciples anymore. They were apostles of, of Christ in the early church. And and John himself wrote uh, the Gospel of John. He wrote uh, First, Second, and Third John. And, and uh, his brother James, though, shortly after the uh, beginning of the church, James was martyred. He was the first apostle to be martyred. We see that in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. But John survived all of that. He survived that persecution. He survived the persecution that Tim was talking about in, this, in the 60s. A.D. 60s. And there was a persecution, I believe, and even throughout the Roman world, there was this antagonism toward Christianity, and some lost their life as a result of that. But in his latter years, John, he ministered in the church of Ephesus. Now, that would be in Asia. Now, that's where we come into the book of Revelation. And while he was there, this was in his latter years, remember Paul established that church in Ephesus and he moves on, and as time goes on, John takes that place. Remember, Timothy was some pastor there, but John pastored there for years, and he had a big influence in that area. They loved him, and he had outlived all of the other apostles, and he became this kind of this father figure to these churches. And it says, to the seven churches, and we have a list of those seven churches because he addresses them in chapter 2, if you look uh, there's the church of Ephesus. Now, that would have been the first city that you would come to. If the boats pulled up close to the uh, closest city there would have been Ephesus, a large city, very large city. And the trade would have started there, and it would have moved through all of these different cities. You had Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum. You have Thyatira, Sardom, or Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And that would have been the trade route Basically, and if you were going to, if you wanted to mail a letter, that's the way it would be shipped to Ephesus and then carried by trade through that, through that way. Every one of these cities had a church. And John, the apostle John, he was a major influence. He was the pastor at the church of Ephesus, but he had a major influence on these people. And you can imagine so, because he was... He was the one who actually was a disciple of Christ. He was one who, who had spent three years with Christ. He saw Him. He was a, a witness. 
So if you were a new Christian and you, you began to be taught these things, you would say, hey, is there anybody living that still remembers that? Oh, yeah, John, I hear he's, he's really old by this time. And they would go and visit him. And there was another persecution, though. There's a persecution in the 60s, and then there's, there's a persecution in the 90s, AD 90, 90 to 95. Persecution of Domitian was the emperor. is against the Christians. And it's a terrible persecution. John, he was pulled out. Of course, he was a pastor, but he was an older guy. And he was beaten and, and persecuted. And then he was banished to an island off the coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea. And he was, he was taken out because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you look in, in verse 2, he kind of explains that. We'll look at that next week. But preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and and, and sharing the testimony of Christ. He, he was still standing for Christ. He said, yeah, Christ, I will follow you in his early years. And then, and then even in his 80s and 90s, you see him still standing, still following, following after Christ, and he was banished. And this is the island of Patmos, a very rugged island, rugged place. It was where a lot of the criminals in the Roman world would be banished there, and they would have to work in the mines. And it was mineral mines, and they would, they would pull these minerals out. And, and John wound up, uh, he lived in a cave, basically. It was probably a ca- carved out mine shaft. You would, you would know those today. And he, he lived in this, this cave. And I, I, here, I understand that you can go there today, and you can see where he lived for that, for that time. But you can imagine what the church is going through. Losing a man like John to the island of Patmos. There was actually, in the same persecution we'll see in Revelation, that one of the persons were, were murdered. But the church needed assurance, didn't it? By this time, I mean, they're starting to say, wait a second, I, I don't like this. Our, our leader, he's, he's gone. And they needed hope. They needed comfort. They needed real answers. And just when they, they were about to give up, and you can imagine them starting to be scattered, they were feeling the effects of this persecution, then they received this letter from John. Oh, there's hope. Hey, we got this letter from John, and the ripple effects of that. You can imagine how great that was. And John, he speaks to, in the, with the book of Revelation, has this older, wiser father figure to the church, kind and gracious and, and full of wisdom and, and love. And John, at this time, you see him in the history, church history as this man who has matured from this early young buck that was wanting to call down fire from heaven. He had grown old gracefully is the way we would say it. But you know what reality was? God had changed his life. Christ had changed this man. Because if you begin to look at the trajectory of his life and you would just you would see him early on, you see his father, and you say, Man, this guy's gonna be an angry, bitter old man. Just plain mean. And you've seen old people that just cantankerous, you just don't even want to be around them. But he grew old, grew old gracefully. They say, now there's two sides of history. Some say that he made it off the island of Patmos, after uh, Dalmatian died in 98. He came back just for a few years, or a few, really, maybe even months, they say. 
And they say that, uh, now this is tradition, they say that they would have to carry him in, and he wanted, he, he, they wanted him to be the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and they would carry him into church. And after years of body being racked, of being on this island, they would have to prop him up, and he would speak to, the, he would speak to people. And he would use a phrase. Here's a phrase that he would use. He said this phrase he said, it was constantly on his lips. He would say, my little children love one another. And they, they ask him, they say, why, John? Why do you keep saying that? Why does that go over and over? And he said, here's, here was, here's the reply. He said, it is, enough, it, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. If this be done, if this alone be done, it is enough. And I'm reminded of Christ. What did Christ say? If you love one another, or if you, uh, you're truly my disciples, you are what? You will love one another. And he's, he's emphasizing love of the church, the love of the church. He was a gracious man. And John died just shortly after the emperor died, probably about 98, they say, 98 to A.D. 98. I don't know how old he was. He was at least in the 90s probably. There's a couple of things I want us to, and we're going to wrap up here, just by way of application. There's a couple of things I want us to notice. Number one, Christ changes lives. Christ changes lives. When we look at the life of John and how rough and, and mean spirit at least, mean spirited he was, you would think, man, he's just going to be an old, cantankerous old man. But you know what? Even through the harshness of his fishing career and in coming in and having to deal with the death of Christ, the death of his brother, and the death of all of his friends, all of the apostles, you would think he'd be bitter. But you know what? He wasn't bitter. He loved. He loved God had softened him. Christ, following Christ had softened this man. He was not, he was not mean-spirited at all. He loved the church. He loved the church of Jesus Christ. Christ can change the hardest of sinners. Can't He? That's grace. That's grace in, in a picture form. In illustration right there is just grace. It may take some time. It may take some time, and John had those moments when he'd flare up. And, but you know what? Over time, over time, he learned grace and he learned love. Number two, I just want us to see, and this is just kind of a side note really compared to, I want us to, I want us to see that God is a global God. He now has John on the island of Patmos, and he has some special things for John, and he's brought about this persecution and he would persecute this frail man, older man, and have him beaten and thrown to the, on the island of Patmos. But God is a global God. He sees the big picture. He knows what's going on with his, his children. He knows their condition. He knows how to comfort them. And what he does is he sends a letter. No, 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 God. No, you send some angels down there. They see you. They see these angels. And you give them hugs and and you kind of caress them, and, and you, you love on them, and you do it that way. No, no. I'm going to send a letter. And this letter is not only going to comfort the church at this time during the persecution, but this letter is going to be the beacon of hope throughout the rest of history. 
Because it's going to show that Christ is still alive and, and He's doing well and He's going to come back. And you're going to have to go through some hard things. But that's the message. That's the message. And in verse 3, blessed is he who reads. So I'd encourage you, take up the book of Revelation and read. Read along with me. Every week as we, as we develop this, these passages, take up a, a section of it and just read. Read for understanding. Read. And those who hear the word. Those who hear the word. Throughout the church history, many times the, the church didn't have their own Bible. Many people didn't have their own Bible. All they could do is just hear it. Just hear it. May not have even been written in their language. You know that, those stories. Here are the words of these prophecies, but it's a blessing. He says, blessed are those who hear, those who read, and those who, those who keep or those who heed, keep the things written in this book. You're blessed. Blessed are those. And that blessing comes by way of a letter. It comes by way of a book. A book. No, no, no. In our touchy kind of feely day that we live in, man, just give me a warm, fuzzy pillow or a warm blanket, Lord. Give me a, give me a holy blanket that I can put on and I can feel good in this. No, you read my letter. You read this letter and you'll find hope. You'll be blessed. You'll be encouraged. Oh, Lord, no, no, this takes, this takes study. No, the warm, fuzzy blanket idea, that's a much better idea. No, you read. You study. You push through for understanding. When you get the message and you stick with that message, and, and therein lies the comfort. Therein lies the comfort. As in the Word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You so much for this Word. I thank You, Lord, for the example that John is for us. Lord, this harsh old fisherman become just this soft, pleasant, gracious, tough man who stood for the truth, who took his beatings. He spent time on the the island of Patmos, but he was there. He fed your your people. He was just this faithful man that you entrusted the Word of God to. You entrusted this special message to the church about your your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to just look past the silly problems that we have in our day. When we compare it to John's day and being exiled to this island and the harshness of the treatment that he had. We don't have any persecution compared to that. And Lord, we find it even hard to to pick up this book and and read it and push through and understand. But Lord, help us to be faithful. We want the blessing that is talked about in verse 3. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, we recognize that, uh, that you change lives. Lord, we beg you, as you changed John's life, it took time, but as you changed John's life, as he continued faithfully following after Christ, he had a whole new person there by the end. Lord, help us, 
Help us to see that even in our own day, even in our own lifetime, where we see this change that takes place in us of just being loving, just being gracious in spite of the harsh world we live in, in spite of the persecution that may come, in spite of the the things that we see all around us, the decline, the spiritual decline of our nation. Lord, help us to be that loving church that the world would say they've been with Christ. They are disciples of Him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If we can help you in any way, we'd love to be able to do that. I will be here throughout the week. You can talk to me even today. We'll have elders available, any of our deacons really. We'd love to do that. Be here. You've got to hear the words. You've got to read. And we'll receive that blessing. I guarantee it. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for our time together this morning. What a blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.